Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. We see the syphilitic shrinking obelisk. The white man's wilting dick. The smiling lie of the televised hive. The witches are watching with their thousand eyes. Witches are watching with their thousand eyes. We smell rotten teeth that speak beyond belief. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 68. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Attention comic book fans, Lee's Comics of Mountain View, California has closed. But here's the good news. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale for half off. Choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar, scroll down to Sellers, and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S. I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. The following interview was recorded prior to the COVID-19 shutdown. Any appearances mentioned by our guests have either been postponed or canceled. We hope that you and your family are coping during this pandemic. The final episode of this season was scheduled for the first week in May. But since many are quarantined, I have decided to do a few more new episodes during the summer break. Let me know what you think. And here are some recent comments about this podcast. I really appreciate the kind words. Here's a five-star review on iTunes from The Bucket of Blah Blah. It says, Great guest, skilled interview. Arnold has a good pop culture pedigree, so he gets terrific guests and knows the right questions to ask. The ideas presented are indeed fun. Another one from Gallery. Informative and fun interviews of comic insiders. I just listened to Mark Arnold's interview with Peter Bagg. It was excellent. Great history on the hows and why Mr. Bagg got into comics and interesting insights of his career. And here's another one that's on Potomatic from Julia Cole. This is a great interview with P. Bag, one of my favorite artists. I've been buying his work since the weirdo days, and I have a complete collection of both neat stuff and hate. This was a real treat to listen to. And now the Fun Ideas Productions news. I'm still waiting for the Warren Kramer book, and I just turned in the Total Television Scrapbook. Beetlefest has been postponed from March to October 2020, and our travel agency has also been postponed for the time being. I am currently working on articles about Hee Haw, 
Sid and Marty Croft, Underdog, and The Pink Panther for Back Issue Magazine, as well as The Mad Book and possibly a Disney book. Our guest today is a comedy writer, and he's also an inventor. Here he is, Roger Brown. Okay, so on the phone today, I have Roger Brown. How are you today? I'm doing great, Mark. How about yourself? I'm doing fine. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in not only writing for, like, Cracked and things like that, but also, you know, you do stuff with inventions and patents and things nowadays. So we'll get to all that, but how did you get your start? Uh, well, I think really the, my first start was in, in uh, high school. Uh, as you can maybe imagine, most people when they're, I guess, a little, have a creative background, uh, have to use it somewhere. And I would get in trouble in school for coming up with weird things that we could do or <laughs> different things that I would write in class uh, that were supposed to be of a serious nature, and I would make it humorous. Uh, and then from there, while I was in high school, uh, one of the uh, one of my friends had told me that a local radio station was looking for someone to write uh, jokes for them for their morning show. Hmm. Uh, so I went to the uh, the DJ, talked with him for a little bit to kind of get an idea of what it what it was he was looking for, and started writing and submitting things to him. Which was great since he was local. I could actually, you know, go in and meet him face to face, and and then about two weeks after I started putting things together, I was actually getting paid for things that I used to get detention for in school. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then and then looking from there, once I saw that, hey, I kind of had a knack for it. And one of the one of the funny things, I guess, or, or a good training uh, aspect of it was since it was a, a daily show he was wanting something every single day so he might call me at five o'clock that afternoon and tell me hey i need 10 jokes on the local mayor or you know uh, city council or dog catchers or something and so you know i had kind of a timeline because you know obviously morning show that meant from five o'clock that night to about six o'clock that morning i had time to try and come up with the you know whatever the jokes were and then get them you know, get them to him in a timely manner. So I, I got pretty good as far as you could give me a topic, and I could usually, you know, try and come up with something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, then once I saw that I was getting paid for that, I started looking at other areas that might, you know, pay me to do something similar. And so I started looking at uh, all the different magazines. I would go to the local bookstore and just look at the magazines and see if anything anything in there uh, satirical or even the cartoons mm-hmm. and so, so basically from there I started contacting the magazines to get in touch with the cartoonists they had in there and I started contacting them and started writing for them hmm. okay and yes. was your first work in Cracked or was it in some other publications uh, Good Housekeeping Magazine was wow. probably my first national uh, publication, you know, other than everything I had locally. Uh, yeah, I started writing for some of the cart- uh, cartoonists or regulars in there. Uh, one that comes to mind, his name uh, was Orlando Bucina. Oh, yeah. He, <laughs> he did a number of uh, cartoons in a wide variety, like Women's Day, Good Housekeeping, Red Book. So it, it was kind of funny. I was 
you know, those were magazines that my mother read. So when she would bring them home, I'm actually going through her her magazines looking for places I could sell, you know, uh, sell to some of the cartoonists. And uh, once I started doing that, one of them had told me about the Writer's Market Guide book, mm-hmm. uh, which is about an 800-page book that lists all the different publications around the country that you could, you know, try and come up with something. So that just gave me another area to start kind of expanding, you know, what I was doing from there. And then I guess also at that same time, I was an avid comic book fan. So I was also in the back of my mind thinking about, hey, maybe I could branch off into doing something there, you know, once once I got a little better at what I was doing. And when you were doing the magazine things, was it mainly gags with cartoons, or did you actually write uh, stories as well, or just gags by themselves, or anything like that? A little of both. Uh, I, I found that I was doing better with the gags with the cartoonists, because uh, at one point I was writing for a little over 20 different cartoonists, so that kept me, you know, kept me busy. You know, just trying to come up with things for each one of their styles and, and some of the others. Uh, uh, I don't know if you'd be familiar, like in the uh, uh, Sunday paper, the Parade magazine. Oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, Hoist had a, uh, a, a, a cartoon that showed up there pretty much every Sunday called Howard Huge. With yeah. a, it was a big dog. Mm-hmm. It was a yeah. Uh, I wrote I wrote some of the gag material for his you know, his characters. Uh, which was kind of kind of fun doing that with a lot of the different cartoonists because, uh, like I said, I've always been a big fan of uh, just just humor in general. So for me to get to write for a lot of the people that I I had grown up reading a lot of their stuff just for the enjoyment of it, it it, it was really a you know a real big thrill for me. Mm-hmm. And did you ever branch off into like writing for like? stand-up comedians or for TV or anything like that as well, or just sticking with publications? Uh, I actually had submitted uh, that was kind of weird too I had submitted some material to Saturday Night Live (laughs) uh, and it was was kind of an interesting thing the way they had set it up, because originally uh, when I had contacted them uh, uh, the producer, uh, Lauren Michaels sent me a note back saying that they didn't look at outside scripts, but they did read nude photographs. Mm. And so, um, <laughs> you know, being being the weird person that I am, I wrote another script and I stapled it to a nude photograph and sent it to him. <laughs> I heard back from them about two weeks later, and they said if they were going to buy from me that I would have to do it in, in bulk so they wanted like 30 or 40 scripts mm. so so I started working up all the different things and this is when uh, unfortunately it was about the same time uh, Bill Murray and John Belushi and all them were leaving Saturday Night Live and a lot of stuff I'd written was geared toward their characters yeah. <laughs> and so, so I, I kind of got in the thing of where I had a lot of material but then it was geared to the wrong people so uh, I started to do it over but then when I wrote back to them uh, I was getting answers back from other people within there and it was just getting harder because I didn't have an agent Mm, Yeah, and and so I was also making some headway uh, with Marvel Comics and some of those so I just kind of drifted back into that, that direction I see 
and um, according to your website, uh, you know, things you've written, I'm only really familiar with like your kind of more humorous stuff, but uh, what type of stuff did you do for Marvel and DC? Things like that. Well, on uh, DC, I did uh, a lot of stuff for the Looney Tunes and the Tiny Tunes magazine and comic book that they had. Mm -hmm. And Marvel Comics, uh, I wrote for Namor. Uh, I wrote for the Spider-Man magazine, Disney Afternoon, uh, their What the book of the, the humors. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. It was like, yeah. not, not Brand Deck or whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, wrote, I wrote for most of those publications for about four or five years. I uh, did Goop Troop, Darkwing Duck, uh, Mighty Ducks, Rescue Rangers. You know, like, like some, the majority of the, the more uh, humor-oriented characters. Got it. Mm -hmm. Well, also wrote for Sonic the Hedgehog at uh, Archie Comics. Uh huh. And uh, it also mentions Lane McCann. What what is that? I don't know if I'm familiar with that publisher, or is that a comic book? Yeah, uh, Lane. Well, it's Lane uh, Morgan. Morgan. Uh, oh, I can't read my own writing. That's <laughs> no, fine. Uh, they did a lot of. Uh, uh, it was funny. The Catholic Church hired them to do uh, comic books but uh, comic book stories but on the saints so, so it was oh. in, uh, it was uh, like the history or the origin kind of background of the, the various different saints but in comic book form and they were uh, going to give them out to the different uh, Catholic churches to, I guess to kind of help you know inspire some of the, the younger younger readers to uh, learn more about them mm-hmm uh, I did about five or six of those for them. Okay. And uh, Acclaim Publishing, you mentioned that. Uh, what did you do for them? Yeah, uh, Acclaim uh, Bloodshot, the Disney action book that they had. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, I did a, and it was kind of funny, I kind of built myself at one time. I was the most unpublished paid writer uh, because uh, a lot of times you would have stories that they would say, hey, we need a, a filler story for uh, like Ninjak or, or uh, you know, Iron Man or somebody else, and I would write the story, but then I would get paid for the story, but the opportunity for it to get slotted into the, the line may not come up, so they would just keep it in the folder. So if someone called in sick or you know, uh, something happened, as long as the story didn't mess up with the uh, the storyline of where the character was at the time, they could use you know use my script. Uh, so you know that's why uh, I was always saying yeah you know, I got I got paid for a lot of stuff that never actually got published. Wow. <laughs> um, now, do you still work on that type of stuff today? Because I know DC still publishes like Looney Tunes. Uh, I know. Uh, like Disney Comics appears through like IDW and other publishers. Do you still pursue that at this point or no? Uh, not at this point. Uh, one of the things I've been actually uh, trying to do is uh, I've got some different books that I'm I'm working on myself, uh, humor books. Mm -hmm. uh, one, one of them I'm doing, uh, I don't know if you're familiar, familiar, there was an older book that for some reason that's always stuck with me. It was 101 Uses for a Dead Cat. Oh yeah, I remember that book. <laughs> Cool. Okay, well, I've got something in kind of that same vein called How to Use Your Frog Properly. <laughs> okay. And then, you know, and then so I'm, I'm putting together a bunch of different things like that that I would like to, you know, get published and then kind of go that route. Okay. 
give, give me another outlet for my humor in that area. Got it. And uh, let's see. So, you know, the main reason where I know you for the, you know, of course, is Cracked Magazine. So, uh, when did you start working there, and how how did you get involved with them? I started working for them. Uh, let's see, it was in uh, 1983. And uh, I wrote for them for from 83 to 1993. Oh, okay. Uh, I was pretty much in every issue but one, and that was because the artist had gotten sick and was delayed getting the work to them, uh, so I, I missed, missed one issue. <laughs> but uh, uh, that was kind of the same thing. When I was doing the work for the other cartoonists, I talked with one of the uh, cartoonists that uh, I was doing some work with on the side and trying to get some other things going, and he had mentioned Cracked Magazine, and, I, and I'd already been a reader of Cracked Magazine and Mad, and so I was like, hey, this is great. And so I contacted the uh, editor um, at the time was Mike Delfimini. Oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, got in touch with him and sent him some samples of my other, other work uh, that he liked. And so he told me to start, you know, sending some things. And the second uh, script that I sent him, uh, he bought from me. And pretty much it was a good run all the way through from there. I had come up with uh, 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 some different features that I thought could be just regulars in there. One of them was called One Shots mm -hmm. uh, that I did for probably four years uh, with them. Um uh, Let's see. Mike Rosigliano was the artist on that. Mm -hmm. uh, we did we did a series called Long Shots and uh, another one called Hazards of. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also, uh, Cracked was kind of known for doing the Cracked Lens, where it was pictures with a uh, you know, different gag yeah. caption. Mm -hmm. uh, I did that probably for about eight years. Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> the very 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 last 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 one. <laughs> Anyway, um, now did you choose to work with Michael? Because I know you probably worked with Mike Rosigliano more than anybody else over there. Was that your choice, or did they assign you that? Uh, no, I had met him uh, through another, uh, like a comic book convention, and had met him there and knew he was writing, you know, a drawing for Cracked, and his style really fit my sense of humor. And, um, you know, um, Mike was just phenomenal as far as I could give him something and what I saw in my head, he could make make it come alive on the paper. And to me, he made it funnier than even what I thought the gag would be. Uh, uh, for, for like Mad Magazine, a lot of people uh, uh, are familiar with the, the marginals that Sergio Argonas would do on the like the borders of the pages right mm -hmm. uh, i still love those you know they're just you know silent gags uh so that's kind of what i was looking at with the one shots and the long shots they were just silent gags but instead of where he does like a single panel uh on there i, I would do four or you know four or more panels on a page uh type of thing but each one would be its own little little gag mm -hmm. uh which I actually got to meet Sergio at one of the comic book conventions. And for him, he was one of my uh, inspirations, you know, coming up looking at all the stuff. And I used to buy all of his books with those. Uh, so, so to get to meet him at the comic book convention, and then he even mentioned 
uh, reading my stuff and liking it, that you know, that was another one of those you know kind of just fun moments for me to be recognized by somebody else that I liked their work also. Mm-hmm. And. Tell us about how you went about writing like a one shot. Was it? Uh, did you sketch them out, or can you not draw, or did you just write it out completely? Yeah, pretty much. I would write everything out. Uh, I can draw, but I'm very limited and I'm slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for the pace that we had to do for the different magazines and comic books, you know, uh, by the time I write it, they get it to a penciler, inkers, you know, colorist, and all that you don't have a lot of time uh so so i was better off just saying okay in panel one this is going on panel two this is going on uh person on the left says blah 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 this person's doing this this one has this expression you know and so on uh you know to until you got got to the final gag you know at the end of what was going on mm-hmm. and, and a lot of those uh i've always had kind of a uh, i don't know i guess a uh, a different slant on how I see things in life, and and so I, you know, I'll wander stores, or I like watching people, and I'll see them do certain things, and or I always do the, I guess, kind of what if, you know, what if Batman, you know, did this, or what if so and so did this, you know, and so uh, I, that's kind of my inspiration for, I guess, the gags or the sight gags. I'm, I'm trying to think of something that's funny that, you know, visually you can look at. I like the sight gags better because they're more universal. You don't have to understand the language because uh, I've gotten things from people in France, Germany, and all over that just like it because visually they, they get the gag. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you have total free reign to basically write about what you wanted or did you get a direction from whichever editor you were working under, under during that time? The majority of the time, uh, they just let me do whatever I wanted, uh, which was great. uh, Because from the standpoint of, uh, like, the hazards of, I would do, uh, like, a page that was the hazards of golf. And then I'd go, like, well, the hazards of being a babysitter, you know, the hazards of going to the dentist. So any theme I could pick up, uh, Mike uh, liked my sense of humor. So I, I would say my rejection rate almost maybe two percent wow <laughs> of, of what i what i would send them you know so so i mean i was i, I was pretty good and then like i said i attribute a lot of that to uh you know to uh, mike Rosigliano also that like i said he made stuff that you know to me was even funnier than what i thought right <laughs> now you said again uh that you worked at crack from 83 to 93 is that correct Yes. So, you know, there's some editorial changes. I think you started out originally under uh, the Sproul family, you know, Robert Sproul and uh, Bill Sproul and everything. Uh, What was it like working back then versus later on? Uh, Really, I I really didn't see that big of a a change on things other than maybe uh, Mike would give me a little direction sometimes, uh, just because he wanted the, you know, he'd tell me like this issue's going to be more on, uh, like say the, the the presidential election, or or it's going to be on uh, NASCAR, or something of that nature, or uh, NASA. Okay, it, this is it, Michael Delfamine, You mean, or, or yeah. also known as Mort Todd? He's been on the show, and we always say Mort Todd, but okay. 
just so we're not confusing him with the other Michael. So, yeah, Michael Del Femini. Okay. Um, so he gave you more direction than, say, the Sprouls did. Correct. Okay. Yeah, I would say maybe about 50% of it uh, under Mike. It, it was... He still gave me a wide range. He just kind of gave me a theme. Like, he would just say, uh, can you send me something on NASA? <laughs> you know, and then, then I would just try and come up with something in that general direction. Hmm. Okay. And then later on, he left, and uh, the last couple of years, I think, you're working under Lou Silverstone and possibly Andy Simmons, or was he there yet? Yeah, yeah, uh, under Lou. Yeah. Uh, that that was probably my most difficult time there when they transitioned from that because uh, it, it was weird. Lou, uh, it was kind of a weird phrasing on him. He, he, he didn't give you a lot of direction, and I understand everybody has different tastes and humor, and I would send him some things, and he goes, this is really funny, but it's not what I'm looking for. And so I would ask him, I'd say, well, can you kind of give me an idea where you're wanting me to go? And all he would ever say is, I'll know it when I see it. Oh boy. <laughs> which which really doesn't give you a lot of help. <laughs> yeah. You know, so you go like, okay, so you know, there's a little bit more trial and error there to finally kind of get a good you know, grasp of where he was wanting to go with things. But uh, yeah, like I said, it's you know, it's with anything else, and and rejection's part of the you know the industry. Uh, so I never took offense to somebody saying, well, I don't get it, or I don't really think it's funny or it's okay but just not what I'm wanting mm-hmm. uh, I would just try and you know talk to them or something and find out a little more of okay well what is your style of humor you know if they kind of say like Steve Martin or the Three Stooges it kind of gives me an idea of, you know you know which way I need to go with something mm-hmm. now is uh, Lou's kind of cryptic rejections the reason you left Cracked or were you just kind of burn out anyway after 10 years of doing it I was actually getting more work uh, (laughs) in comic books at that time so I was kind of going you know the the amount of time I was going to spend doing that I already knew I could do this over here plus you were writing 22 pages worth of material versus maybe 4 or 5 pages of material you know with crack so I was like well just from a a money ratio, I was getting paid more to do the other, so I kind of leaned more in that area. I see. And uh, when you're doing, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, when you're doing like the comic book stories, um, same type of question. I mean, did you have free reign about what subject to cover, uh, whether you're writing for Looney Tunes or Disney or anything else, or did you have a lot of restriction? How'd that work? Uh, really wasn't a lot of restriction on any of them. The main thing they wanted was uh, it was something they liked. Uh, if I like with Looney Tunes, as long as I could fit it within, you know, they tell you, hey, we're looking for something that would run three pages, seven pages, mm-hmm. uh, and I would just send them a small blurb. Uh, like I tell them, a lot of people, uh, the the blurb you see on the back of a paperback book, you know, kind of gives you an overview of the three hundred pages of the book. Right. And kind of based on that, you're you're going, yeah, this sounds interesting. So I would kind of send that small of a blurb to them for the five pages or 22 pages that I was going to write. And based on that, they would say, yeah, that's a direction. Yeah, or, uh, or they would, but the only direction I would really get is don't kill, kill off characters. Because <laughs> uh, you know, obviously, you know, they don't want certain characters to, uh, to die. 
and then others they would just tell you make it generic enough that it would fit in no matter where they wanted to put it so if they had to hold it for six months it would still fit in without uh, uh, people going well well i don't why did that happen mm-hmm. you know so you could make just a a standalone story now when you submitted to those publications uh did you write it like a movie script or did you storyboard it or both how did you uh, send those type of submissions in more like a uh, a movie script uh yeah i would say scene one this is going on or panel one this is going on these are the people talking this is the verbiage that you know character one saying character two uh and it it was a uh a little harder for me to adjust at first and then I kind of caught on because the comic book industry the way they set things up is a little different than say Cracked Magazine set theirs up because I would write the whole the the script and everything for the page that was going on or, or the different themes and everything that's there and pretty much I'd say 95-98% of the time it came out the way I had it written uh, for comic books, I would say, okay, we need six panels on this page and this. And what they would do is they would draw it up, send it back to me. Then I would work in where the word balloons went and the dialogue for those word balloons uh, to go in. Then it would be sent on to the, uh, the penciler, inker, and all this. And a lot of times when it came back where I thought they needed six panels to get the point across... I would have four. Hmm. <laughs> I still had to get the same amount of verbiage into four panels, or I had to rearrange the verbiage so that it now fit the four panels, but you still understood the story as it went along. So so that, that was kind of interesting to me because I couldn't go back to the editor and say, hey, I wanted six panels on this page. He needs to redraw it. <laughs> they would make it work. Yeah. You know, so, so that... That was a bit of a, an adjustment, but uh, it didn't take me long to kind of get the handle of it. And, you know, again, like I said, you know, the way I look at it was, you know, I'm trying to give them a product they want, so I will adjust it to how they want. Did they, um, like with Crack, you, you worked primarily with Michael Rusigliano. Uh, did you have any artists that you worked specifically with, or was it just like a crapshoot every time you turned in something? Uh, kind of crapshoot. I, I had some things that I could kind of say, "Hey, look, uh, 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 Rick Tyler, who also worked for Crack, uh, did work for Cracked. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also did work with them, and so did uh, uh, Gary Fields. Mm-hmm. And I knew both of them. So a lot of times, I would have a story idea. I would go to Rick or Gary and say, "Hey, I'm looking at put, putting in this script." take a look at it if it's something you like if you'll draw like a sample page of it we can send it in together and if they like it they'll just tell you know tell you to draw it Uh, which that worked out good on a number of cases but then other ones yeah i would send it in and it'd be someone i've never even heard of before (laughs) you know drew it Mm -hmm. uh like working with disney a lot of the people that drew for the disney adventures book were from argentina you know, so, uh, it, it, which was kind of fascinating to me when you looked at globally where something went before it got finally published. 
you know, because you may have me living in South Carolina, uh, the penciler lives in California, the anchor is in Argentina, the letter is in New York, you know, and the colorist, you know, uh, I had one where the colorist was from England, <laughs> you know, you know, but everybody had to get all their stuff done and together within 22 days in order for it to be published on time. Wow. Now, did you talk with any of these people, or did you primarily just talk with the editor? Uh, mainly the editor. Now, uh, some of the artists, you know, uh, that I had already worked with, or things of that nature. Uh, yes, but like with uh, a lot of the work that I did for Disney, I never talked to anybody that ended up doing my work. I only talked with the editor. Okay, so if you had like some sort of disagreement with something, you know, you'd just go to the editor about it or something, right? Right. Got it. Okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but yeah. And uh, I know you said you're trying to get back into it and trying to publish a book, but uh, uh, did you? Was there a reason why you stopped all that and moved on to what we're eventually going to talk about? All these stuff with inventions, or did it just kind of die a natural death, and you were just looking for something else to do? Well, the, the weird thing was at the time I was uh, doing the comic books and writing for Cracked, uh, I was also a reactor operator <laughs> in a uh, nuclear facility. Hmm. But uh, we were making, we weren't, uh, it wasn't a power generating uh, nuclear reactor. Uh, it was making weapons grade plutonium, uranium. Uh, you know, for uh, nuclear weapons. Hmm. Uh, so it, it was kind of a weird thing during you know during the day. I'm I'm doing you know because uh, I was on rotating shifts, so it was like nights, days, different things. So I would go from running a nuclear reactor to trying to write something on Batman, Spider-Man, you know, whoever, <laughs> something funny. And so it was kind of weird. Uh, like I said, when I'd go to the bookstore, I was buying Scientific American, Time Magazine, Batman and Robin, The Flash, you know, Crack Magazine, all this stuff. So you know, the person ringing me up would go like, you know, you have a wide range of reading <laughs> you know, and I'm like, uh, yeah, but you know, I needed it for what I was doing. <laughs> now, how did you end up in that uh, vocation, as it were? Uh, where I live uh, in South Carolina, that's one of the larger employers in this area. Uh, at, at its height, there were 22,000 employees working out there. When I first started out there, there was only about 8,000. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it was the only facility like that it's a 220,000 acre uh, facility <laughs> area and had all these reactors and other facilities on it and they were hiring and so I, I went and applied for the job and they have you go through all this testing and everything and I had did not I, I've got five years of college with no degree because I kept changing majors oh. <laughs> Uh, I, start, I started out as a, a pre-med major, then I went to broadcast journalism, uh, and then I ended up working in a nuclear facility. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> no wonder you buy so many magazines now. 
So it's, you know, so if you look at my resume, it kind of goes all over the board. (laughs) You know, it sounds like it ought to be four or five other people's resumes in part, but uh, no, but it's all me. Now, what what type of things did you do there? I mean, it's like when when I hear nuclear reactor, which I'm sure other people listening may think this is like it's Homer Simpson dropping the green bar and uh, running home from work or something. Uh, is it like that, or is it completely mundane? Uh, or what what do you, what do you do in that type of situation? Oh no, well, we're we're doing pretty much what you're saying. We're moving the rods up and down inside of the reactor, but instead of generating power. We're doing it to manipulate the isotopes in the rods to convert them, say, from uranium-235 to uranium-238. Once it goes through that process, uh, it's taken and separated out, and then they make what they need uh, to send to the uh, the military for uh, weapons facilities. Uh, we also, uh, one of the things I thought was kind of neat too, because like I said, uh, I'm, I'm a space geek mm-hmm. and I love Star Trek and Star Wars and all that stuff. Uh, some of the uh, plutonium and different things that we, we developed there were used in NASA's batteries for like the Voyager satellites and, you know, uh, the, on the space shuttle, different things of that, of that nature. <laughs> uh, we also made uh, uh, medical isotopes like barium and other things there also. And you still do that to this day, or was that just at that time? No, I, I did that for uh, 20 years and then uh, uh, left, you know, from there uh, after 20 years. And did you continue on in any sort of similar field, or did everything else take precedent in your life, like, you know, what we're going to talk about again? <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that's really, I guess, where the in, inventing part came in, because I, I started doing the inventing while I was there, uh-huh. and, and realized, you know, here's, uh, again, it, it comes from that creative process of kind of looking outside the box at things because uh, in that type of environment where we're working there you're uh, like if you were working in a power nuclear a lot of things are similar between all the other power nuclear facilities that you're involved with uh, since we're making a totally different product you're kind of singular to what you're doing so a lot of things that would come up you had to uh, come up with on your own and devise certain things to do what you wanted them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found I had a knack for it. I was the only non-engineer working in the engineering department at one time uh, because of the, uh, again, I guess the aspect of how I look at things. Uh, to, to give an example, uh, we had to come, well, the engineering department was supposed to come up with a device that would, uh, reached 35 feet down into this underground storage tank that holds liquid radioactive material and you had to grab something that was in there bring it out a 10 inch hole and basically it's a one use type item because then uh, because of the contamination and radioactivity you have to uh, send it off to be buried mm. uh, what they designed and came up with was going to run about $82,000. Well, you're only using it once, so it's you know $82,000 to use it one time and then get rid of it. 
I looked at what what they were thinking of doing, and I actually came up of, with a method to do the same thing using PVC pipe, hmm. aircraft cable, and it cost under three hundred bucks. Wow! Uh, and w- they tried it out; it worked perfectly. They buried it. But they only buried three hundred dollars, not eighty-two thousand dollars. Okay, I was going to ask, was it reusable? But it really doesn't matter at that point when it's that cheap, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so from shortly after that, uh, they kind of had me doing my regular job, but then they would have me look over these different things they were looking at doing, or they would say, "Hey, we've got this problem. What do you think?" To see if I could come up with something easier and. Uh, I always use the KISS method. Uh, So so, uh, a lot of things I would would come up with, you know, they they would work, but it wasn't this really elaborate type setup. Uh, So so it was kind of of weird. Like I said, I I was working with 22 other engineers. I'm the only non-engineer in their meetings. So there was a little bit of hostility from their end of it because, you know, again, they've got the degree and all of that, and here I am, you know, kind of uh, you know, doing a little better on some of their stuff. Uh, I guess to, to give you an example, we had a job that I, I hated doing, and, and that goes back to the same thing. Uh, you know, frustration a lot of times will give you good creativity. <laughs> on uh, This job was basically... In order to go into these environments, like I said, everything you took in there basically ended up having to be buried other than you, you know, <laughs> and, uh, which always made me kind of look at that kind of funny, too. Uh, but you would take uh, hoses, cables, extension cords, all these different things, breathing air lines, all these things in. They would all have to be thrown away and buried. Uh, and just uh, what you ended up doing, though, was taking some of these uh, materials, and it's basically like a, if you'd say a, a an eight inch wide trash bag that's two hundred feet long mm-hmm. and open on both ends. You would have to push like the extension cord through that sleeving in order to take it in, plug it in a, a wall, what we call a clean area that wasn't contaminated, take it into an area that was contaminated, and you utilize it and you could pull it out through the sleeve keep the extension cord and throw away the sleeving mm-hmm. well that would take two people about 45 minutes to do a 200 foot hose so you would spend two days doing this to all this different equipment so that you could work on the third day using everything you put the sleeving around and uh i, I was looking at that particular job and i'm going there's got to be a better way of doing this well i came up with this tube inside a tube where you put the sleeving on the one tube ran what you wanted sleeved through the tube and then when it came out the other way i could pull it where it took two people 45 minutes i could pull it through in myself in under a minute wow (laughs) so they really you know that there was a labor savings and waste production plus everything that you took in this way you could now keep uh it saved just that one facility four million dollars a year in reduced waste wow now 
these inventions and any others we may talk about, I mean, did you get paid for them or get any patents on it or anything about it? Or is it just kind of like, I did it and then they kind of took ownership of it? How did that work? Uh, well, the one step I did for out there, since it was under uh, this, which is really, this is kind of just really funny uh, on both ends. Uh, to kind of give you an overview, I was writing for Cracked Magazine and all these different uh, publications at the time when I got hired out there. Because of the nature of the work and the security clearance level that I had to have, they checked your background and everything else. Okay, well, I had to give them a copy of everything I had written uh, for like the last five years so that they could make sure that it wasn't anti-nuclear or anti-America, subversive material, any of this nature. <laughs> so the FBI is checking me out. Okay, well, what I didn't know uh, at the time was how the FBI was approaching different places. And this was one of the, the, the times, too, about when uh, 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 Sproul and them uh, were take, uh, taken over, not Miss Sproul, uh, uh, the last editor. Uh, Silverstone? Uh, Lou Silverstone? Yeah. yeah. They were buying things from me, and all of a sudden they stopped, and I couldn't figure out why. And he wasn't really answering my questions. People at Marvel Comics and DC Comics all of a sudden stopped, too. <laughs> and I couldn't figure out why. And I'm like, I would call them, and they were always in a meeting or, or couldn't come to the phone, take a message, but they would never call me back. <laughs> so I called uh, one of the editors at Marvel, and I gave the name of another writer as, as being me. So he answered the phone. So I said, before you hang up, I'm just trying to find out what's going on. And all he told me was, look, we don't want any problem with the FBI. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, the FBI called called us uh, asking about you and all this other stuff. And I said, well, it was for job uh, security clearance. And he said, they didn't say that. He said, you know, they just wanted to know what they knew about me and what I had written and stuff. And they never bothered to tell them it was for uh, clearance at my job. Oh, boy. So, so obviously no one wanted to be associated with me thinking I'm in trouble with the FBI. Right. <laughs> so I ended up having to have the FBI write letters to all of them saying it was for job clearance, not that I'd done anything wrong, and then all of a sudden people started buying from me again. Wow. <laughs> That's lucky. <laughs> so, the, so the weird thing was, when I started doing the inventions out at, uh, out at the plant there, uh, the facility, you know, everything was okay, and what I did, uh, since it was government-used, uh, I didn't really see anything from it other than I would get like a you know a bonus and, and things of that nature but I started thinking about it I'm going like well shoot I could do this on the outside too so I started looking at toys and all these other things mm -hmm. well in order to to send a toy to say Mattel Hasbro or any other place I would have to submit the toy idea to the government to get a release form s stating that it is not nuclear Related, right. wow! And we get a release from them saying it's okay for me to send this yo-yo to Whammo, you know. So it, it was really weird because I was coming up with a lot of things 
you know, for the outside. And so every one of them I was doing, I would have to fill out seven pages of paperwork for every idea that I had to submit to the company I was working for. They, in turn, would have to put my seven pages with the nine pages they were doing and submit all that to DOE. DOE, in turn, would review all of it, submit five pages from them saying it was released back to them, and then they would send me that whole package saying it's okay for me to go ahead. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You You know, and my first thing was I'm sitting there going, look, all right, right off the bat, why are we doing all this paperwork? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a yo-yo. Tell me how a yo-yo has anything to do with anything we do in a, a nuclear weapons facility. Wow. <laughs> you know, and but I still had to do the paperwork. So I, I, at one point I kind of got, well, okay, I'm just going to make this as horrible on them as it is on me. I had over 111 different ideas for toys, tools, kitchen items wow. that were not nuclear-oriented. I went. I spent almost three weeks filling out all this paperwork. Oh, <laughs> it all at one time to them. And, and, you know, they called me up, up front, the vice president of the company, <laughs> called me up front, wanted to know what in the world am I doing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with all of this stuff. And I told them, so I'm just following y'all's protocol and waiting on it, you know, for you to send it back to me. So it, it, it was hilarious. But they, they did all 111 of them. Wow. Now, what was the, what was the upshot of that? I mean, uh, you got through all that. Did uh, any or all of these toys or products see release, or how did that work? Yeah, uh, uh, every one of them I turned in got released back to me, which was great. Right. Uh, and then, you know, then I started shopping them around, and uh, I've gotten uh, all together. I've gotten sixteen different items in the toy, tool, kitchen, eyewear, uh, and uh, pet industry uh, licensed. You know, to where I, I was getting paid royalties on them. Can you name a couple of them? Just to... <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, one of them is uh, it's called a uh, pizza pizza scissors. Uh, it was done. <clears throat> <laughs> it, it, it's it's a little different. Uh, you know, most pe- uh, people use uh, the pizza wheel, right? And uh, a lot of people will complain that you know the wheel when you press down on the pizza pan it makes like a divot in it, scratches it up, and all this. And then plus, it's a pain in the rear to clean where the wheel goes through the two spokes, you know, that, that hold the wheel to the handle. Right. Well, I came up with a, uh, a type of scissors that was easy to use to cut through it, and then you could also turn it sideways and use it as a, uh, a spatula to serve it, okay. and it came apart quickly. Uh, so when I sent it to uh, the, the company, they, they fell in love with it, liked it. Okay. Uh, from me. Uh, another one was a uh, sunglass visor clip, like you have in your car, mm-hmm. uh, to hold your sunglasses. The the one that had the it's got like a little button you push and a jaw, and it takes two hands to to work with it. I I had them. They broke easy. They wouldn't hold every size sunglass, and it took two hands to hand you know to operate it. Well, that's not good while you're driving. Well, I came up with a way of doing it with one hand you didn't need a button to open this job and it would hold any size sunglasses Hmm. Uh, so i sent that to uh, a sunglass hut and they they liked it and licensed it from me so i I just kind of pick different areas uh 
you know, I, uh, like my wife said, uh, I'm probably the opposite of most uh, women and guys when they go shopping. The guy normally wants to, you know, when can we leave? <laughs> you know, well, my wife, I think, has the opposite part of that because I'm going, ooh, I'm going to go to the toy section. You know, or, ooh, I'm going to go look at the tools, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm in there just looking at how everything works, operates, and I'm looking for contact information off of all of the different boxes to see if it's a company I'm already dealing with or a new one that I can approach. You know, so so she has basically the opposite of me. She comes to me going, hey, we can go now. <laughs> now, when you're – I know nothing about – inventing about the process so uh when you're inventing something let's just use your pizza scissors as an example um how would you or where would you approach somebody with this hey i got this great idea for pizza scissors i mean you don't go to your local pizzeria and say hey i got this idea i mean you and you don't really have a writer's guide like the big book you're talking about so is is there a place for inventors to go if they have an idea such as that uh, well, not really. Uh, the, the, bad, the bad thing with it, it's another one of those learning curves type of thing. Now, I've actually written a book myself, an ebook uh, called Common Sense Inventing, where I kind of go through all the stuff that I've done in order to, you know, to, to get things to market cheaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of inventors uh, will spend thousands and thousands of dollars on their idea without first looking at the idea and seeing what else is out there. Kind of like, you know, uh, uh, even basing it, say, on comic books. If I wrote a a story for a new character that got bit by a radioactive spider, <laughs> yeah. you know, obviously it shows I'm not real familiar with the comic book industry and I didn't do my homework to see what else is out there. Right. Uh, the same thing applies to inventing. Uh, you have to kind of look at what's already in that area. And so like if I, uh, like with the sunglass visor clip or the pizza scissors, uh, I've, he- I've heard several different people complain about the same thing about, you know, the uh, messing up the, the uh, pizza pan and trying to clean the thing and all that. So mm-hmm. I went and looked in Walmart and some of the kitchen uh, stores like Williams, Sonoma, and some other places and went online to see what is actually out there. And then based on that, I kind of look at, okay, you know, how can I make it more user-friendly and and still do what the others are doing? And so once I kind of have that in my head, hey, this is something I want to do, I I looked at all the different companies that produce different things, and I'll just start picking some of those companies, and I write basically the same thing like you do for comic books or for, uh, for Cracked. I'll write a small blurb of what my idea is. And if, uh, like, well, uh, Rick Tyler uh, helped me on a number of things where he drew what we call a, a cell sheet. This is like a one, two-page thing, kind of uh, giving you a visual of what we think the item would be. And then you write text of, you know, why it's user-friendly, how, you know, why would the consumer want it, that kind of a thing. Uh, to kind of pique their interest. And uh, based on that, uh, if you go to my website, uh, rogerbrown.net, you can see examples of the sell sheets, and that's all I sent to the company. I didn't patent it. I didn't do all these other things that you see everybody doing. Yeah. And 
the which was really unusual from other people that uh invent things you know they spent like thirty thousand dollars on patents and prototypes and all these different things i've never spent over a hundred dollars on anything i've come up with to send to a company uh the the sunglass visor clip that i did i had eight dollars <laughs> invested in that <laughs> Uh-huh. And and they all tell you, you know, you have to patent it before you show it to a company. You have to do this. You have to do something. It's a lie. Uh, you you don't. Companies are looking for good ideas that are marketable. Yeah. It's just you just got to present them in a fashion that they uh, like with with uh, the comic books and the others that they get the idea that you're trying to get across. Uh, and and the biggest thing I tell a lot of the inventors. Uh, would you rather read a pamphlet or a novel to get my idea? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh, there's a thing they call the the elevator pitch. If you and I walked onto the elevator and you're you're uh, uh, let's see, like Pro- Progressive International, uh, you own the company, and I happen to walk on the elevator with you, I don't know what floor you're going to get off on, but before you get out of that elevator, could I give you my pitch? for my pizza scissors where you would understand it and see if you had interest before the doors opened and you walked out. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's the same thing with comic books and with Cracked. You're trying to get their attention quickly because, you know, they get pages and pages of people sending them stuff and they have to read through it. At the same time, they're trying to edit the book and, and all the work that they're doing. So you want to make it as simple and easy on them as possible to get the idea and they say hey yeah this is an interesting uh, plot idea or a storyline or invention Uh, they all work the same way right I, I guess the reason why everybody thinks you have to get a patent and everything is is the worry that some company might steal your idea is that something to be concerned about or have you never had a problem with that I've never had a problem, uh, and, and uh, again, it comes down to how you approach people. Uh, normally, I will send something to a company, and if I said, hey, uh, I've got a, a kitchen utensil that works like a pizza pizza cutter, will not damage the uh, pizza pan, is easier to use, can be used as a spatula, and is dishwasher safe. I haven't told them how I'm going to do it. I haven't sent them a picture of it. Mm. But based on that, they can go, yeah, that sounds interesting. I'd like to know more. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so I've already established a correspondence between me and them. And normally they'll send me, or I have my own, a non-disclosure agreement that, you know, they'll keep it confidential. I'll keep whatever they tell me confidential. And you send it to them based under that. Ah, and okay. and one of the things that I've, I've always found with people that patent things, the patent is only as good as the person who wrote it <laughs> and your ability to defend it. Right. So, you know, you think if you went, uh, I mean, you look at the one, was it uh, uh, Mattel, uh, the Bratz doll between them and uh, I think the other company is called MGA. I'm not positive on that. But... Those, uh, those two were going after each other over who had ownership of that thing. Mm. They spent like $23 million in court 
<laughs> do you know the general person that, you know in your neighborhood that could go against Disney or Mattel and and outlast them in a court battle? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so, so you know so. And then you have the other issue of what I call uh, what started out a dog ends up a cat. What you send them and the final product that comes out in the store may look totally different because, you know, what you have is a good idea and everything, but in order for them to make it more marketable to the consumer, they may have to do some tweaks or changes to it, or they find out engineering-wise what you thought would not work that way, but they can still accomplish the same thing by doing this. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, well, them doing that, you know, again, comes down to, like I'm saying, uh, you, what you thought visually would be a dog ends up a cat on the shelf. Well, if you patented the dog, it doesn't cover the cat they're selling. Ah, yeah, makes sense. So I always tell them, you know, it's fine to cover yourself with paperwork and, and any company that would say, um, we, we never heard of your idea or whatever. I have a nice paper trail between me and them showing them asking to see my idea, my blurb of explaining the idea, then the sell sheets and everything I sent them, mm-hmm. and either their acceptance or their rejection email of it. So if they all of a sudden come out with it, it's going to be real hard for them to say they never heard of it. Right, yeah. <laughs> and most large companies, you know, if if you have what I call realistic expectations uh, dealing with them, most of them are, are pretty upfront and, you know, uh, honest on how they deal with you on things. Uh, granted, yes, uh, I have seen some inventors get ripped off really bad, but a lot of that came from them not reading the contract. Mm. We were given to sign, right? Uh, where you know, I'm, I'm from working in the nuclear facility. You had to be very, uh, I guess, anal is a good word <laughs> on meticulous because one, you didn't want to cause a meltdown or some other problems. So I got very good at reading things to kind of look for any kind of discrepancy, anything wrong. So I've never had to use a lawyer on anything I've done, but. I feel very confident with what I'm signing, you know, that, uh, that I'm, I'm protected and I'm going to be compensated. Mm-hmm. Now, typically when you are compensated, do you tend to make it a one-time only compensation or a royalty situation or both? Uh, everything I've done so far has been royalty. Normally I get an advance and then I get an ongoing royalties as long as the item sells. Hmm. That's cool. And in uh, most cases, what I do then also is uh, in the contract, it'll say that, say, the, the product sells for 10 years, uh, they patent the, and the company that licensed it patents it. If they decide we're no longer interested in it and they're no longer going to sell it, they will give me the rights to the item back for me to pursue it with someone else, and I will also uh, get assigned the patent. Okay. And that's all detailed in whatever agreement you set up. Correct. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> because I was saying, uh, not a good assumption if you just think that's going to happen, but I get it. And okay. I'm sure you've done this long enough that you cross all your T's and dot your I's and things like that. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I go into the trust, but verify. Right. <laughs> 
Now, it also says that uh, you're an invention consultant, so I guess you, uh, with your book and just by talking to people, you do like what we're talking about now. You just kind of consult people if they come to you with an idea and they say, oh, uh, I have this great idea, but I don't know how to market it. I don't know how to get it to a company, and you'll offer them advice probably for a fee. Is that correct? Uh, Yes. I've gotten a little more selective uh, in the last you know, year or two. Uh, I worked for uh, for about uh, three and a half years for a company called Edison Nation, mm-hmm. uh, and they were a uh, company where they would have invention searches and other things, and they would say, "Hey, um, you know, Westinghouse is looking for the next great light bulb, or, or you know, whatever item, or or craft uh, uh, is looking for a new type of uh, food uh, out there, or storage container." Uh, you know, Ziplocs looking for new bags. And you would have all these people submit these ideas into the company. You would vet through all of those, narrow it down to, say, the, the best 20 items out of the, you know, four or 5,000 you may have come in, and then present that to the company. They would narrow it down to one or two, and then from there you kind of go back and forth, and they would, you know, maybe hopefully license one or both and then you know you run your next search uh i did that for like i said about three and a half years so i got real proficient at looking at things to kind of get an idea yes it's marketable no it isn't oh this is already out there this is better than this is not better than what's currently on the market and you know things of that nature so uh uh i did that and then like i said i was inventing had gotten things licensed prior to working for them, worked for them for three, three and a half years, and licensed things after working for them. And that's when I went ahead and wrote the book also. Because <laughs> uh, I was getting asked, like you say, by so many different inventors. Uh, I'm on a lot of the inventor forums that are on the web, uh, on the internet, uh, answering questions and things like that for people. I had to kind of go where I'm a lot more selective who I deal with because unfortunately uh, inventors uh, some of them have issues with with rejection (laughs) (laughs) to to put it I guess nicely (laughs) I get what you mean but yeah (laughs) it's just funny without getting into details I'm just thinking about that yeah, I mean, you know, and I mean, and, and and I guess from my end of it, I understand both sides of the industry. I understand it as an inventor. I understand it as a company looking for something you want to put on on the store shelf. So I, you know, I I'm in that unique position of I understand both sides' complaints and what both sides do good, both sides do bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, is what I try to cover in in my book, so you know, inventors can kind of understand. You can have your idea rejected. Even when the company will tell you, hey, you know, we love the thing. It'll probably sell millions of units, but it's just not what we're wanting. You know, so, I mean, a lot of good ideas get turned down. Mm-hmm. You know, same thing like with Cracked Magazine. When, you know, he tells you, uh, you know, I'm not sure what I want, but I'll know when I see it. Well, For- you get the companies that say the same thing. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and some people don't, uh, inventors don't have a good grasp of when a company says, yeah, this would sell millions of units, why they would say no to doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you know, some of them would, you know, discuss things about whether you had parents, uh, 
you know, just all sorts of really nasty things. Uh, you know, so so I had to kind of limit, you know, uh, the amount of people that I worked with with things just because of that. Uh, you know, when you when you tell them their baby's ugly, a lot of people just don't take that in a good way. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. Uh, um, so at this point, I guess, you know, you mentioned earlier you're gonna, you're doing some new books and things like that. But uh, I guess uh, continuing on with these inventions is probably going to be something you're going to continue to do for the foreseeable future and things like that. Oh, yeah. I, I love doing that. And uh, like I said, uh, I guess, you know, from my end of it, that's why I'm trying to do the books and things of that nature because there's not a lot of humor magazines and other things out there now is a good outlet. Everybody's going to, you know, like videos on YouTube and, you know, cat videos and different things of that nature. Uh, so I'm looking for another outlet for that side of me, the creativity part of it. Mm-hmm. So, but I also like the inventing part of it because uh, you still get that same thing, uh, no matter which one of them you're doing, whether it was doing for Cracked Magazine, doing for comic books or inventing, it's really neat to see something you thought of in a store on a shelf somewhere and then while you're standing there see other people buy it right <laughs> that you did that yeah because mm-hmm. uh, uh, that, that was like uh, uh, the, the sunglass visor clip that I did I was riding in the car of a friend of a friend of a friend uh, and I, I noticed they had my visor uh, clip on their visor in their car mm-hmm. and they were surprised that I did that. They were thinking I had to live in New York or, you know, <laughs> for the company or, you know, did something of that nature. So they were really surprised, you know, uh, that, you know, uh, just an average person could, could do something like that. Right. You probably said, I invented that. Sure you did. You know? <laughs> but it was funny because I said, okay, look up my, look up my name. I said, go to rogerbrown.net and that, you know, clip showed up on there, so he's like, "Oh, okay." We <laughs> thought the other, you know, the other items on there. So, you know, uh, I actually did that with Cracked Magazine. Uh, I was in, I live in South Carolina. I was in Virginia, and we were at a, uh, oh shoot, uh, I think it was a grocery store or something. Uh, we were buying some groceries for the, uh, the place we were staying at, and. <clears throat> Uh, I went in and was writing a check, and since I was out of state, you know, they wanted more than one form of ID. Mm-hmm. And I gave my driver's license and uh, a credit card, and the lady asked me, did I have one more since I was out of state? She said they'd really like to have three. And I said, well, if I can show you my name somewhere else, would that work? And she looked at me kind of puzzled, and she goes, what do you mean? I said, I'll be right back. And I went over to where their magazine rack was, pulled a cracked magazine off, opened it up, and under the uh, writer's section, pointed to my name and said, that's me right here. And I flipped to the page where the work was on the in the magazine and said, this is me. And she started laughing. And she said, your check's fine. <laughs> and took it. So uh, my wife was dying laughing. She's going, you used you know, a magazine to get a check cashed. <laughs> So, whatever yeah. works <laughs> hey don't argue <laughs> alright well you know I 
wanted to learn more about you. The invention part was fascinating because I've never heard that side of what you've done. Uh, I only knew really the the comic book writing and cracked writing and things like that. Uh, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, what's the best way to do it? Uh, through my website, uh, rogerbrown.net. Okay. And email uh, and everything's on there. <laughs> and is there anything else you'd like to plug at this time? New, uh, new well, inventions? if anybody's interested in the inventing side, I guess my book, uh, Common Sense Inventing, mm-hmm. uh, if you put that in, it'll show up and it's also on my, my website. Okay. And uh, what were the two books that you're working on? The Frog one, what was that one again? <laughs> uh, how to Use Your Frog Properly. Okay. And then the other one was uh, Words and Phrases Visually Explained. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Roger Brown, for being my special guest. Episode number 69 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. of your lewd jeweled boob to